Swami Kriyananda has often said that he feels our master Paramahansa Yoganandaji is the avatar of Dwapara Yuga. Now, let's define those terms. Avatar, we've seen that word a lot on billboards, 3D, all sorts of things, web, uh, internet games. But avatar is from a Sanskrit root, which means to descend. So what avatar means is the descent of divine consciousness into this world. It says in the Bhagavad Gita, and Swami quoted this uh, recently, whenever virtue declines and vice predominates, I will incarnate again to uplift virtue and destroy evil. This is the role of the avatar. They come not just to uh, have a nice, inspiring life, they come as spiritual warriors. And Yoganandaji was such a warrior. He told us that he uh, was William the Conqueror, who, uh, if you read the Catherine's wonderful book that's come out, he changed the course of Western history. He also said recent, uh, he said during, uh, while Swamiji was with him, that he also was a Spanish king who helped to drive the Moors out of Spain. And Swamiji has done some research, and some others have, and they feel very much that Master must have been the king of Spain, Fer, uh, Ferdinand III, who was known as Il Santo, the saint. And he was greatly respected and in, a great warrior, and in fact drove the Moors out of Spain. And we, there's, uh, Swami feels that he was William's son, Henry I, who completed William's mission. And he also feels that he was Ferdinand's son, Alfonso X, who the similarities are incredible. Alfonso was known as Il Saggio, the sage, and he was conversant in many languages, as Swamiji is. He wrote over 400 pieces of music, as Swamiji has, that are very, very beautiful. And before coming to America this year, Swamiji stopped in Spain and through the wonderful work of our team in Spain, was able to have some private, the tomb of Ferdinand and Alfonso, they're in, a, in Seville, Spain, in a, a wonderful, beautiful cathedral there, as it was described to me. It's open one day of the year for people to come. And Swami was able to have private meditation and prayer time with the tomb of Ferdinand. And he said he felt a great power there. He felt it was Master. So Master has come again and again as a spiritual warrior. And now into Dwapar Yuga, the avatar, the spiritual warrior for this age. Once Swamiji asked Master, is what you brought a new religion? He said, no, it is a new dispensation, a new giving out of these ancient teachings that are appropriate in our time when virtue is, on the, is being suppressed and uh, a vice is on the ascendancy, not in a profound way. I do want to say that, but certainly in a superficial way, because Dwapara Yuga is a time 
the age of energy. Everything is shifting. All the pieces are being thrown up in the air. All the values, as um, those of you who know the play, The Jewel and the Lotus, all the old values are being corrupted. And But it's true. The old values no longer fit the consciousness of the souls being born today. And so these avatars come, not to say they're, as we, at the beginning of the 20th century, we found the rise of existential philosophy, which said there are no values. It's all relative. Well, this is not the truth. There is Sanatan Dharma, as the teachings of the Vedas are called in India, the eternal religion, eternal values, not based on culture or historical times, but based on the very fabric of creation, the very consciousness with which this planet, this universe, this all, everything that we conceive of is created from the consciousness of Sanatan Dharma, of this consciousness that there is oneness in this world, that the underlying reality of this world is unconditional love, is divine consciousness, is beneficence, and that's what this Dwapara Yuga avatar, Paramahansa Yogananda, has come to share with us. But the mission of our masters began long ago. The, one might even say that Yogananda's mission began 2,600 years ago at the advent of Kali Yuga, as Jyotish was describing. Because at the, that 24-year cycle, which is when the divine plan, the, the, guide, the spiritual consciousness that guides this planet looked and said, all right, consciousness is descending. We're going into Kali Yuga. How will we preserve the higher teachings? We will have to specialize. The East will specialize in the inner religion, in the knowledge of the inner self, of the understanding that man is a spark of God. The West will specialize in outward efficiency, in, in scientific discovery, in getting things done. And we will have these two streams of consciousness bifurcate. They will go in different directions throughout Kali Yuga in order to preserve them, because if we try to hold on to them as a unity, the consciousness of man in Kali Yuga is not yet elevated enough to integrate them. So they bifurcated, they separated. And then at the end, at the very end of Kali Yuga, which took place about the beginning of the 20th century, the beginning of Dwapar Yuga, a number of very significant things happened. Not things that are recorded in history books, not great resounding news stories, but around 1860, we don't know the exact date because it's just recorded from word of mouth, that great avatar who was charged with the spiritual development of the East, Babaji Krishna, was meditating in the Himalayas. And he was visited by that great avatar who was charged with the spiritual evolution of the West, Jesus Christ. Jesus appeared to Babaji around 1860, we don't know exactly the date, and he said, what has happened to my church? They are do good works, 
They have outward rituals, but the concept of inner communion and the concept of God awakening has been lost. And he said, we must begin to bring these two currents together. A few years after that, 1864, we know this date historically, Lahiri Mahashaya was working as an account, another avatar, working as an accountant for the British military. Of, if you can think of a more perfect example of humility, you tell me. <laughs> but, but there it was. And he was mysteriously called, as we read in Autobiography of a Yogi, up into the Himalayas. And there Babaji, his guru, again, Babaji and Christ, then Babaji and Lahiri at these points in time, at the end of Kali Yuga, where we're making the transition. And Babaji said, he called Lahiri, manifested a golden palace in the Himalayas. And he said, and he gave him Kriya Yoga, as Jyotish was speaking of. He said, in the darker ages, through man's indifference and priestly secrecy, this sacred technique of Kriya Yoga has been lost to mankind. Now, in the divine plan, it is time to bring it forth again, a new dispensation. And he initiated Lahiri into the science of Kriya Yoga. But then there was something more that happened. Babaji instructed him, he said, give this technique only to qualified disciples who have advanced enough that they are willing to totally renounce the world. That was what Babaji said. And where would we all be if that had been carried out? And, and Lahiri, who was a householder at the time with children, he said, oh, master, can we relax these strict prohibitions just a little bit Think of the suffering, the threefold suffering of sincere men and women living in the world, trying to live according to Sanatana Dharma, trying to do their duty. Can we not give them this liberating technique, as it says in autobiography, the most effective technique for self-realization by self-effort ever given to mankind? Think about that the most effective technique for self-realization by our own effort ever given. And it's from time immemorial. This is not something particular to Ananda or particular to our line of gurus. This is, again, it's the, fa it's the vehicle for self-realization. And so Babaji said, the go God has spoken through you. We will, I give you permission, to disseminate Kriya Yoga to all sincere people who will practice it with dedication. And so that was a pivotal point. Then we come, move a couple of decades forward, 1893, the birth, the advent of the avatar, the birth of Paramahansa Yogananda, because it was his destiny to carry these teachings forward. And then the following year, 1894, Sri Akteshwar, who was not a Swamiji at the time, who was a married man, raising, doing property management, living off his investments, 
he went to the Kumbha Mela in Allahabad in India, these great religious fairs that happen periodically. And at this fair, a young, he was mentally kind of criticizing what he saw there. He saw a lot of outward show, but not a lot of inward realization. And he was thinking, surely the men and women of the West who through dedication and, and service to others are trying to improve the lot of mankind, certainly their life is more pleasing to God than these beggars who are just seeing what they can receive from others. And just then, a young sadhu came up to him and said, someone wants to talk with you, come with me. And he was brought in the presence of a radiant young youth with copper-colored hair and a smile that his eyes captured infinity. And of course, it was Babaji. And Babaji told him three things of significance at that meeting. First, he said, I am pleased to meet you, Swamiji, Babaji said to Sri Yukteswar. And Sri Yukteswar protested being a man of great integrity, he said, I am not a Swami. And, and this man who he had yet to recognize said, those on whom I betold, bestow the title of Swamiji never forsake it. And that was his initiation into the Swami order. He had a more formal initiation later. So that was the first thing, drew him into the monastic life. The second thing he said was, I see your interest in the West, and I'm giving you the command. And by this time, Sri Yukteswar understood who he was speaking to. And he said, I'm giving you the commission to write a book comparing the great scripture, the great teachings of the Bhagavad Gita and of the Bible. I want you to re-express the original yoga as taught by Krishna, which with Babaji by himself, and the original Christianity as presented by Christ. And, and Sri Yukteswar protested a bit, as we often do when Swami asks us to write a book. <laughs> but he said, do I have the ability to do this? And he said, what I ask of you, I also give you the power to fulfill. And then the third thing he said to him, in the future, I will send you a disciple who has been specially destined to spread these teachings of yoga to the West. And so this was the coming together, Christ, Babaji, Lahiri Mahashaya, Sri Yukteswar, Master, how it all tied together, leading us to the beginning of Dwapara Yuga, the age of energy, the stage was set. And here we find ourselves. And then in 1920, Master, in fact, came on the city of Sparta and arrived in Boston Harbor. And in fact, our, our dear friends and guru bhais in the east, on the East Coast are going to be having this September a special pilgrimage out there in Boston to celebrate the 90th anniversary of Master embarking on these shores. And they'll go to the Boston Public Library and the different places associated with Master's life there. But here the stage has been set. We have been, there is so much available to us, but now we have to ask the question, what were the teachings specifically that Master brought 
to enable us to change our consciousness at this point in time. It's very important to understand this is not random. This is very specific to the evolution of our planet and to the change of consciousness. Master said, thoughts are not individually but universally rooted, meaning our thoughts are dependent on our own level of consciousness. There are people right now on this Tuesday morning on this planet doing things that would make our souls cringe with pain and horror, and they're happening at this moment as we speak. There are people right now whose souls are merged with God, who are uplifted and see a unified vision of God's consciousness in this world, and it's happening right now. And it, we find ourselves in this wonderful, pivotal point that we can choose. What do we want? What universal thoughts do we want to listen to? And it's dependent on the level we change our, uh, the level to which we raise our consciousness. Really, it's as simple as that. People often come to Swamiji, and I've seen it happen. I've personally been present many, many times, and they come with a list of problems, and they come into his presence, and because of his uplifted consciousness, they can't remember a single problem. And then their friends say, well, did you ask him about this and this and this? They said, no, I just couldn't remember. And why is that? Because with the lifting of consciousness, the universal thoughts that you are receptive to are of a higher nature. And your little daily concerns seem not worth talking about. What's the problem? They're like little ants. But so we need to understand, and the title of this class, just so we don't not address it, is <laughs> Changing Consciousness. I'm sorry, that's not the title. The title is Raising Consciousness, Mechanism for True Mechanism for Change. And that's what you need to understand. The more you raise your consciousness through the tools and techniques you have been given, the process of change happens automatically. So we are, Dai, uh, Ananda Moimai had a beautiful image. She said, if you're seeking to get into that current of divine consciousness, she said, it's like when you have a little raft and you're trying to go out to sea, and first you kind of try to paddle in one direction, but maybe the current pushes you back, and then you go to a different spot on the beach, and you go in that direction, and maybe the, and you keep, the current pushes you back, and you keep trying and trying until finally you find that current that will take you out to sea. And this is the times in which we live. We, there is that current. It is accessible. And we need to look at the teachings we've been given. So what are some of them? Jyotish talked about some. I will address some others. One of Master's key pillars upon which he based his teachings were the greater the will, the greater the flow of energy. And in this age of energy, he gave us the key with that. And he gave us 
the energization exercises. He said this was his unique contribution to the science of yoga. Isn't that amazing? And we do them every day, and how often do we think this is a unique contribution to the science of yoga? But if we can do it with the consciousness of Dwapara Yuga, that we are awakening as beings of energy. When I was a young person, I came to Ananda, I was 22. I had been a dancer and an athlete and strong, good health, all those things, enjoyed yoga. And I really didn't see why I needed to do the energization exercises. I felt great every morning when I woke up. And then time passes. And you start to realize that tea isn't doing it. <laughs> Coffee isn't really getting you where you want to be. You begin to realize that there's something that you need that sustains you and that is accessible. And honestly, the older I get, and I'm not that old, but the older I get, the more I cherish the energization exercises and would not miss them. And the more they help my meditation because the, ener the principles of the energization exercises, the greater the will, which we stimulate by tensing and relaxing, the greater the flow of energy. That is exactly what we need when we meditate. If you cannot use your will to uh, enhance your energy, to concentrate, and more specifically, those of you who know or will learn this week, at the end of the week, the technique of Kriya Yoga. Kriya Yoga is a direct extension of the energization techniques. It's awakening that energy in the spine and consciously directing it towards the center of higher awareness. One of the things that and Yogananda brought in bringing this dispensation to the West, he encapsulated the teachings of India in three things, learning to concentrate the mind, learning to awaken the inner energy, and learning to expand the awareness. And all of those we can learn through the energization exercise and then apply them to your whole life. But it's so thrilling that this technique of energization is given to us now. Swami even said about Master's interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita, which is the first interpretation ever given that really probes the symbolism of the Gita. Swamiji has said that interpretation would not have been comprehensible in a lower age. In Kali Yuga, they would not have understood it. It's about Krishna, and he's blue, and he has a peacock feather in his hair. And there you go. But what Master was talking about in this age was that the Gita is a symbolic message of the process of the soul of the war. Life is a battlefield. One of my favorite quotes from Master's Metaphysical Meditation, and I say it regularly. <laughs> Life is a battle for joy every step of the way. Let me fight to win that battle on the very spot where I now stand. And that is the message that in, in, in a 600-page volume that Swami gives to us. 
in the interpretation of the Gita. So the greater the will, the greater the flow of energy, and the corollary, the greater the energy, the greater the magnetism. And magnetism is really, if you don't meditate with magnetism, if you don't meditate with the thought, God, you are listening to me. You are with me right now. Come to me. We have to be magnetic in our spiritual life. We can't just say, I'm a horrible sinner, and you know it, and I know it, and uh, let's get on with it. it. It won't work. Master said the greatest sin is to call yourself a sinner. We need to see ourselves as children of God. And so those, those building blocks. Jyotish also talked, environment is stronger than willpower, and that's why we have communities. But I want to touch just a little aspect of communities, how it expands your awareness. I remember in 1976, and some of us were here then, when the glorious experience of God in the form of a forest fire came and burnt down our community. And it was fascinating. And people, we had no insurance. There was no, we had nothing but our own strength. And as Master often said, there we were, bloodied but unbowed. And I remember my dear and beloved longtime friend Durga. We, truckloads of stuff came, clothes and diapers and canned peaches and everything. And just, it was all down by the market area. And she spent days and days with very little sleep going through box by box of that stuff saying, this is for her and this is for him and they've got a new baby and that's for them. And her whole consciousness was on the needs of everyone else. And I doubt that she really thought much about what her needs were at the time. And we called her Our Lady of the Free Box. And indeed she was. And it, but it was an example of the opportunity of living in community, not what do I need. Gosh, I've lost my house, I've lost my clothes, I've lost everything. What does everybody else need? And at that same time, there were people, we had very little money to rebuild. As I said, no insurance, no big donations came in. But the little that came in, the first people we gave it to were the people that were leaving, who decided they didn't want, they didn't have the, frankly, the commitment and the dedication to stay and rebuild. And we thought, we know what we have. We know we have God's power with us. Let's give them this money and help them get restarted wherever they want to be. And that's environment, an environment like this where you think, God will take care of me. I know it. But what about that other person? I want to help them. So this expansion of awareness that comes from community. Master also came with, as Jyotish was saying, we've both been saying, this science of religion. That was his first talk that he gave. And he gave Kriya Yoga to awaken inner energy. And you, do you know the statement Master made about Kriya? He said, give me a group of boys, even the worst sort. I don't know what that would be, the worst sort. I, I, honestly, what always comes to mind are those people you see at the football games with the wedge of cheese on their head. <laughs> I don't think they're the worst sort, but that's the visual image that I get. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Anyway, the cheese heads, whatever they're called. So 
if Master had a group of those guys with the cheese wedges on their head, he said, if, I would, if they would practice Kriya Yoga regularly as I teach them, as I teach it, they would become saints in a very short period of time. So my goodness, what is that? Not even if you want it, but just the power, because we are on a carrier wave of Dwapara Yuga now. The, these techniques have more power than they would have otherwise. And so we need to understand that there is a grace flowing right now. And the grace of the guru who says, I will help you through all this. It's why I came. And so now let's tell the rest of the story. 1920, Yogananda comes to the West. 1926, J. Donald Walter, Swami Kriyananda, is born in Romania. 1946, Autobiography of a Yogi is first published. And many of us who were the founding generation of Ananda were born around that time. 1948, as we heard Swamiji speak so movingly yesterday, he reads the autobiography and takes the next bus from New York to Los Angeles and kneels at the master's feet and says the words he never dreamed of saying, I want to be your disciple. 1969, Ananda is founded. And in the 80s and 90s, many of you who are the next generation of Ananda who will continue this work globally were born. And this brings us to today, August 10th, 19, or to 2010, August 10th, 2010, here we are. And where do we go from here? Think about it. Think of this vast sweep of time. If you want to even go back 2,600 years ago to the beginning of Kali Yuga, and here we sit, and we have the choice before us. Will we be the harbingers of this great dispensation? Will we ride this carrier wave of grace that has come through our line of gurus? And will we have the dedication and the will and the wisdom to say, yes, let's do this together. And I would just want to end by the way we end the Kriya Yoga initiations. Paramahansa Yogananda Maharaja Ki Jai! <laughs> Sing, hallelujah, God is true.